Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me as always is Aaron Miller. This week we have a few different topics for you. Our first topic will be the announcement of a wireless router from Google. Uh, Google OnHub is the name of this device and we'll, we'll talk about the significance of the name as well as various other elements of it and we'll, we'll follow on from our conversation last week about business models and, and privacy and specifically about how this might play into all of that. Our question of the week this week is about the current status of the patent uh, uh, litigation between Apple and Samsung, where that's got to, why we should even care at this point, and what the implications are. And Aaron will talk us through all of that, drawing on his background as a lawyer. And then our third topic will be just talking a little bit about what we might expect from Apple in the last part of the year as we head into the fall with an iPhone event likely in about three weeks from the day that we're uh, we're uh, recording this podcast uh, as well as whatever else Apple might come up with in the fall and then we'll wrap up as usual with our weekly pick when I'll have something to recommend to our listeners. So let's kick off with a discussion of this Google OnHub wireless router. It's a bit of a surprise, kind of came out of nowhere to some extent. Um, just by way of background, this was announced on Tuesday. Um, it is a wireless router. It's about $199. Um, it's gone on sale online. We'll be shipping out in the next few weeks as well as selling through people like Amazon and so on. Um, it is just a wireless router for today. And the main selling point is that it's extremely simple to set up and to manage, that it kind of takes away a lot of the complexity in terms of the flashing lights and the complex settings and so on that are typical with wireless routers. It's better looking. It's this sort of blue or black cylinder that can sit in your living room without looking too ugly and out of place. Um, and it's got an app that you manage it with, which is a lot easier than kind of going to 192.168.1.1 to manage the thing. So those are some of the key sort of selling points. But um, really, I think we want to focus our discussion today on you know why Google might be doing this, what else this might be leading up to, because there's certainly an argument that this is a sort of Trojan horse product for, for Google here. So Aaron, any initial thoughts? Yeah. Uh, Honestly, the first device that came to mind was the motor was the what was that called the Q? Do you remember that that yeah ball the ne Nexus media? Q mm -hmm. yeah the Nexus Q, and, and and this is obviously way more useful than that. But but it just seemed I think the reason it came to mind is is this was sort of an out there kind of hardware product for Google to mm -hmm. announce. Yeah, and the Q was seemed to be the last time that happened, yeah. um, and that's obviously long dead. Yeah, I, I don't never think really even launched. Yeah. Hub, yeah. but we'll see. Right. Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting one to me. I mean, you know, it's it's funny. I was kind of tweeting yesterday when I first saw the announcement. You know, Google has an FAQ list. It's only got four questions or something like that on it, but uh, for the OnHub. And uh, the, the key question I think many people will have is why is Google doing this? Why are they getting into this category? You know, Google hasn't had a huge sort of history or success in the hardware market. They've had... The Nexus phones and tablets, which have a very specific purpose for supporting developers. Now, the Nexus Q, which, as you pointed out, was a dismal failure, never even really launched. They've had, you know, the odd other device here and there. They have obviously acquired Nest, but this is not a Nest product. It doesn't sit within that Nest group, and it doesn't have the Nest branding. Um, and so there are a couple of reasons why Google might be doing this. One is, you know, 
they might be wanting to collect more data on what people use on the internet and the different devices that people use within the home and that kind of thing. Um, there were some comments in the Wired article about the OnHub launch saying, you know, quoting somebody from Google saying there are some very strong protections and some lines drawn around the sharing of that information um, within Google and, and the use of it for targeting advertising and so on. But that's going to be an obvious concern. And this kind of goes back to the conversation that we had last week about different business models and the privacy implications. Google's model requires both very strong security on Google's part, but also strong user trust because other people have to trust Google not to misuse their information, not to collect more than they need and not to use it for any sort of nefarious purposes or to share it with third parties. And when it comes to things like this that obviously have the potential to capture all the internet usage from many different devices within the home, that might give at least some users pause. And so it raises this question of do users trust Google with this kind of thing? Um, the other thing, of course, is that Google uh, in May at its I.O. developer conference announced uh, a strategy for the Internet of Things with a new stripped down version of Android called Brillo and also uh, a communication protocol for Internet of Things devices and, and home devices specifically called Weave. And this on-hub router supports Weave uh, and that communication protocol. So another obvious way to see this is that it's Google's attempt to provide a hub in the home for all those kinds of devices. So I think that's very likely what's happening here is, and, and it's there's sort of a parallel here to Amazon, which has this Echo device, which is sort of a microphone and speaker-based device that sits in your living room. Also looks very similar actually to this on-hub, it's a cylinder um, to which you can speak requests and it will respond in different ways. That too feels like something of a Trojan horse where in and of itself, that doesn't seem like a product that would drive Amazon sales or anything like that. And yet it's probably Amazon's hub within the home for smart home equipment. And I think this on hub is very likely the same thing for, for Google. Um, one of the things I noticed was that Google's actually created a new subdomain called on.google.com on its website. And this is currently the only product there. But there's a strong implication that this, if this is the on hub, there's a whole set of on services or other products and things that would connect to that hub. A hub is, you know, one part of the story. There's always hub and spoke or at least peripherals of some kind. Um, and so it seems very likely that there will be other devices in this on strategy. Um, the app that you use to manage the on hub is simply called Google On, which kind of lends further credence to the idea that this is just the first of quite a number of devices that could come out under this heading. See, all that's so fascinating when you consider that this is a separate endeavor from the Nest thing, uh, the Nest acquisition and, and Dropcam, you know, being brought into Nest, because it, it seems like that's where this would fit. Um, of course, you know, Google has a way of sort of just trying whatever and, mm -hmm. and not really waiting and, and sort of fully developing things, especially right. platforms. And uh, it, it definitely seems like there's a lot more behind the OnHub uh, device, but uh, you know, it, it tells it's it's just very typical Google style to kind of float this thing out there in a way that leaves a lot of speculation and people wondering at what's next and what really is being planned with this and why this would matter. Um, and, and maybe there's a plan for Nest to eventually be brought in under the On sort of category, and we'll find that out later. But it seems strange that they're separated organizationally. Um, you know, for a lot of Mac users who have bought the airport base stations, um, this thing is sort of like a, well, okay, you know, Apple's been doing the, the easy Wi-Fi thing for a long time. 
you know, being able to control it with an app, all that sort of thing. Right. Uh, that said, I think Apple still has a long way to go in truly making it easy. I mean, there are still weird problems with Wi-Fi that that people run into that I run into. I have an extend. I have a, an express that extends my network and. Occasionally, it just starts its own network for reasons that are not entirely clear to me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I, you know the the privacy thing is a fascinating one. In fact, I think my very favorite take on this news actually came from John Moltz. So he's the guy. He has a website called uh, VeryNiceWebsite.net. He actually used to write Crazy Apple Rumors web- website from years ago. Um, he's really funny. Uh, but he, he quoted a Wired article on the OnHub and then said, oh, there are settings that control what data is shared with Google. Well, then that, wait, why would any, be data, why would any data be shared with the maker of your router? It really right. is a fascinating question. I mean, I don't think yeah. any other router manufacturer out there sort of has a setting that says, oh, and if you don't want your data shared with us, all you have to do is check this box. It's like, why is that even an option right. for a router manufacturer? I, I uh you know, but I think there's something, this is another effort by Google, I think, to confront the fact that all this stuff is happening outside of the browser now. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Google's control of information, its access to information has always been mostly tied to the browser, and more and more devices are leaving the browser behind. It's not about web anymore, it's about internet more broadly. And, uh, and, and Google loses access to all kinds of information. Um, that uh, that kind of as a result of that. So, yeah, and no, it definitely seems to be a major part of it. I mean, a couple of other thoughts that I had. One, one was this sort of setting. Like, why do you need the setting if there are all these limits placed on what they can do? You know, like right. either limit it or don't limit it. But why are you giving me the option still? Like, just you know, who wants to share that data with Google, and why would you want to? That's an interesting question in its own right. Um, another thing is, you know, it was interesting. I looked at some of the comments on the official blog post about this and there was a predictable range, you know, everything from kind of take my money now to, you know, why would I want this? I can't control my VPN and pass through and port forwarding and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, that, that's funny in its own right and that it kind of highlights how different types of users respond to this kind of thing. But it also highlights the fact that the kinds of users that Google's most likely to attract with this are people that don't want to change their stuff, the people who don't want to bother with technical um, complexities and all the rest of it. And yet, if it's going to be the hub for a digital home, sort of smart home strategy, those are the very kinds of users who were kind of the early adopters of all this stuff. So I wonder if there's potentially a bit of a mismatch between the kind of user that Google's trying to attract with this simplicity message versus the kind of user that it's going to want to grab if it really does roll out more of a smart home strategy around this whole on thing. Um, the other thought that I had was just, you know, in the context of what we talked about last time around with Google and Alphabet and all the rest of it, in the old Google, it wouldn't have mattered much whether, you know, Nest and this group worked together. Eventually, they could have talked to each other internally anyway. To the extent that Nest is now its own little company and sort of subsidiary under Alphabet and Google is going to be a separate one, I wonder if this makes it harder actually to collaborate between those groups and essentially makes Nest no different from any other third-party company that Google might want to integrate with here. Um, you know, they've already said, I think, that Nest will eventually speak Weave, which is this communication language uh, or protocol that um, these Brillo devices will use. Um, but that, as I say, makes it pretty much just the same as any other um, third-party device. So I wonder if the new structure actually hurts in some ways Google's ability to sort of tie some of these internal efforts together when they're sitting now in separate subsidiaries. 
it would be fascinating to be there in Google and to see how this sort of a project happens without, with or without involvement from Nest. I, I, I mean, when you're a company as big as Google and you're trying so many different things, right? Because we talked last week how how uh, Larry paid how Larry and Sergey seem intent on being innovators. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Google's such a big company; people are constantly trying these new things. It, it seems kind of crazy that strategically that you could have a, th- a technology like we've developed without Nest being fully on board from the beginning, right? right. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's it, strategically it's sort of all over the place, and there's a lot of coordination that you need to do to maximize your portfolio of innovations. And this sort of tells me that Google's still figuring that out. Yeah, um, absolutely. The idea that this wasn't connected with Nest, that this wasn't sort of integrated with any of the Nest line from the get-go seems strange mm-hmm. to me, because why not right. do that integration from the front? I don't understand that. Like the on-app, for example, why doesn't it talk to everything Nest at the same time as talking to the hub? Mm-hmm. That's not clear to me. And it seems like Google is still, because they're letting people try so many different things and greenlighting so many different projects internally, some of which eventually make it to public, you know, public view. Uh, if those projects aren't, if the related projects aren't ever connecting and strategizing and working together, it seems like a lot of missed value. Yeah, no, and this is characteristic of Google and its business model. I mean, you look at the TV space, for example, you've got, you had the Android TV or Google TV initiative for a long time. Then you had Chromecast, which was basically an entirely separate initiative. Now you have Android TV, which is yet another different initiative that sort of takes on some of the Google TV stuff, but still isn't the same thing as Chromecast. And you've got all these different kind of competing protocols and platforms and products and the different brands associated with them. And you sense they're actually totally separate teams sitting in different buildings at the Google headquarters, um, you know, working on this stuff. And it's very different from, say, Apple, where this stuff is extremely centralized, where there's a high uh, premium on simplicity and sort of a single strategy for different things. And, and it, yeah, just highlights the kind of differences between some of these companies. Well, and I think this is the reason so many Google products that do get into public view eventually die off. You know, Google has that reputation of killing off things, even if right. some people really love them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just such, there's so much churn it feels like at Google, um, you know, and eventually things rise to the surface and endure. But um, I think there's a lot of wasted opportunity in that process as well, and it seems like it'd be fantastically hard to manage, especially culturally. I'm curious how the alphabet shift is going to change that cultural attitude of just of, I mean, Google still has 20 percent time, right? Where right. You get to spend At least the in day theory. Right, where you're supposed to be able to... In fact, they just had an engineer this week, or rather Google just came out with this solar product, Mm. right, where you can type in your address and it essentially uses Google Maps to look at your roof, figure out sun positioning relative to your roof line and tell you what sort of solar panel you can install with what sort of efficiency and how much money you could save by doing that. Um, You know, that was a 20% project, uh, so, so this kind of stuff seems to still be happening, which is exciting. They're really cool ideas. Um, and I can see how that'd be really hard to manage culturally with the shift to alphabet where everybody's getting broken off and right. sort of much more permanently assigned to their specific corporate, you know, identity. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and you could easily have somebody at Nest working on something that somebody in what's now the Google On team or whatever is working on at the same time. And because they're now separate entities, you know, they would never talk to each other potentially until one of them launches something and the other one suddenly goes, oh, hang on a second, we're working on that too. So, yeah, it just seems like it could exacerbate some of this sort of islands of innovation problem that they've had already with a single corporate structure. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to our second topic, which is our question of the week. And the question this week is, what's the current state of the Apple-Samsung patent battle and what's the significance? Why is it important even at this point that we should still be interested in what's happening and what's developing? And the reason for covering this is there have been a couple of recent news items around this, which I think Aaron will probably talk us through, one of which was uh, one of the the courts that um, heard Samsung's appeal here refusing to to grant um, that. And then the other one was that the uh, Patent and Trademark Office invalidated one of Apple's patents that's at, at issue and kind of central to this case. So a couple of news items have kind of triggered this discussion about it. Um, also, there's been a whole range of other players getting involved in this litigation, mostly on Samsung's side. Uh, and so we'd like to kind of talk about why they might be doing that and why that's significant, why they even care about all of this. Um, and just by way of background, Aaron uh, is, a, is a business school professor, but he's also a, a lawyer. He has a law degree and he's an active member of the bar. Um, so keeps that sort of side of his uh, background active, even though he's currently um, teaching business school rather than, than acting as a lawyer. So he's the one who's kind of spent the time researching the background here and is going to talk us through some of this today. Um, so Aaron, I guess let's get started by just reviewing the current status of the litigation, kind of where are we in the process at this point? Yeah, well, um, this is all tied back to the big original case that was decided where Apple famously was awarded over a billion dollars in damages. There was a subsequent case that where Apple got a much smaller chunk and Samsung got a little, we're not talking about that second smaller case, we're talking about the big billion dollar one. Um, you know, the, the truth is, is that patent law is really confusing. And I think it's one of the reasons reporters often report details wrong. In fact, to get to make it clear how hard patent law can be for an outsider, if you're an attorney that wants to process patents, like you want to actually help people file patents, you have to take a totally separate bar exam from the bar exam you, you take to practice law in your own state. So I live in Utah. I took the Utah bar exam so I can practice law in Utah. I'm not entitled as an attorney to help people process their patent applications. To do that, I have to take a totally separate bar exam called the patent bar. And to even qualify for the patent bar, I have to have a scientific background uh, that demonstrates a skill or, or knowledge set related to the kind of stuff that is patented. And so that would include like a bachelor's degree in say engineering or science of some kind uh, or extensive work experience in that area. So before I could even take that bar exam, I have to demonstrate the capacity for very technical scientific things. And I have a good friend who's a patent lawyer. I have several friends actually that are patent lawyers. And, uh, you know, even though I'm a lawyer, when I hear them talk about the intricacies of patent law, you can see why it requires a whole separate bar exam to be competent in that. Right. So with that context, let's talk about what's happening now. So, well, actually, I'm going to back up just a little bit. So Samsung had obviously appealed the original ruling and the damages that were awarded. Um, back in May, the appeals court actually reversed part of... Um, the appeals court actually uh, 
reverse and through back part of that decision. And the reason is because Apple made claims based on two things. One was on a group of patents, most of which were design patents, which I'll talk about in a minute. And the other was something called trade dress. Trade dress is actually not a patent issue. It's more of a trademark issue. And the idea is that you might design your product in such a way that it has ornamentation and the way it looks essentially communicates to the purchaser where this product came from. So the idea is that, you know, your products all look a certain way and people know that they're your products because of the way they look. That's a trade dress. And that's actually, you can protect a trade dress. I mean, nobody else can make the product look confusingly like your product because the way yours looks indicates that it comes from you and nobody else. Apple sued on trade dress because the iPhone had sort of a distinctive look and feel. And not just physically, but also in the software, like the grid arrangement of icons and mm-hmm. and that sort of a thing. Right. <clears throat> the, the court actually threw out the trade dress awards. Um, and it said that the problem with trade dress is whatever you're claiming as trade dress can't actually have functional value. It has to be purely ornamental. And the court threw out the trade dress and said, look, this is... This, these are functional items that Apple is claiming to be trade dress and protected. And because there's functional value, they're not protected as trade dress anymore. So that part was thrown out. Samsung continued to appeal and um, hoped to get everything else thrown out. But the court upheld what essentially turned out to primarily be the design patents. Um, so that was... Samsung, that was back in May, Samsung said, oh, we didn't like the decision. The way appeals work in the federal courts, you, you have your main trial at the, at the district level, and then you appeal to what's called the circuit level. And in circuit courts, for an individual circuit, in this case, it's called the federal circuit of appeals. Um, there, there, there are, you know, a bunch of judges, but usually only three judges sit in on any individual appeal. The judges that sat in on the appeal back in May, there were three of them. Samsung didn't like the decision that was made, and so they, what they did is they asked for all of the judges and this in the federal circuit court to, uh, to, to review the decision again, um, and they denied Samsung's request. They basically said, "No, look, those three judges did just fine, and so we're denying your appeal to what's called en banc review." Right. So, so that that's what hit the news this week, or I, mm-hmm. I guess maybe it was, was last the re- week. result of that process. Yeah, it was the result of that process. So, what's left for Samsung is to essentially appeal this to the to the uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court, and whether or not the court will actually take it up depends on a lot of factors. We'll kind of visit it at the end when we talk about where this might go. Mm. But that was so. That's where Samsung is. Is they only really have one last resort when it comes to appealing this case. Okay. Um, the other thing that hit the news this week was that Apple had a patent rejected retroactively. Now, the reason that matters a lot is because this was one of the core design patents at issue in the case. It was the patent about the rectangular shape with the rounded corners and the primarily black, you know, uh, face of the device. Mm-hmm. Um, Apple was claiming a design patent on that, and uh, the problem was. So they filed that patent a couple years later than some other related patents. And when you 
when you file a patent like that that's tied to earlier patents, you can essentially connect the two patents so the later one gets an earlier effective date. Uh, okay. uh, and what happened for Apple is they didn't sufficiently establish that connection between mm -hmm. the later design patent that has now been rejected with the earlier patents. And so what that does is that pushes this patent's effective date two years later. Well, the reason this matters is because it now allows for two more years of reasons to invalidate the patent. Patents are usually invalidated based on something called prior art, which means evidence that somebody else has already invented the thing that you're claiming to have invented. Right. With two extra years of prior art to consider, uh, the court has ended up uh, throwing that out. Um, or sorry, not the court, the U.S. Patent Trademark Office. Now, this is not a final decision. They can, Apple can request the Patent Trademark Office to reconsider. If they still say no, then Apple can appeal that decision all the way throughout the federal court system to the U.S. Supreme Court. And because there's a lot at stake um, financially and otherwise, Apple will probably continue to fight and try to get that patent to get the original filing date respected on that, or the original effective date on that patent respected by the Patent Trademark Office. Right. So there's a couple of different processes that could end up in the Supreme Court here, I guess, from yeah. two different sides. Well, and this is, I mean, this is all an example of how messy patent law really is. I, right. I mean, you have multiple adjudicating bodies. Mm -hmm. making decisions at the same time, even though their decisions have impact on prior and future decisions. I mean, Apple has at least a few hundred million dollars writing on this design patent, right. where, where the court already said that Samsung infringed, and, and now the Patent Trademark Office has said that patent is invalid, which makes this court's decision have to change, right. which would mean retrial, some of the awards are already being retried in a third trial that's going to happen this fall. I mean, it really is a massive, massively complicated um, right. set of moving pieces. Yeah. Um, this, the, one of the really interesting things that happened with the Samsung appeal is that um, a group of Silicon Valley companies joined and filed what's called an amicus brief, which means friends of the court, which means they're not parties to the, the lawsuit, but they're interested in the outcome. Right. Google, Facebook, and some other Silicon Valley companies filed a brief with the appeal where they essentially said, look, you, know, you can't let Apple get away with this because of the way design patents work. So this is the reason all this matters today at a much bigger landscape than just between Samsung and Apple. Right, so a few hundred million dollars. I mean, it's not nothing, but it's obviously in the grand scheme of Apple's revenues and what they've presumably spent on the court cases. Right. You could argue they should have given up a long time ago. It really isn't worth it. But this, I guess what you're talking about now gets to why it's still important at this point. Right, and so the way this works with, so a design patent is kind of like trade dress um, in the sense that you're seeking protection for something that's ornamental meaning it can't have all that much functional value. It has to be primarily ornamental. Mm -hmm. and, but you've invented something novel, and that's why you're patenting it. Right. Um, Apple does a lot of design patents. They place a lot of value on design. And so they think the way things look matter a lot um, and, may, and are very closely tied to the way things work. And so Apple files a lot of these design patents. Design patents are really easy to file. And they're also relatively easy to obtain compared to what are called utility patents, 
which are what most people think of as inventions, like actual, you know, like, like physical things that nobody ever invented before that help you do something differently than you could before. Right. And so the thing about design patents is that they are easy to obtain, but if somebody violates a design patent, the way the law works is, let's say, yeah, and let's say you had a design patent and I violated it. You take me to court and you win. Whatever product I was selling that violated the design patent, the, under the law right now, you are entitled to all of my profits from that product. Wow. Yeah, so any profit I made off of that product, you get to keep. Now, it, if the design patent I violated was was the reason I sold so many, right? Yen's, Yen's widget is amazing because of this design patent. Everybody prefers it. And I'm just copying yours as closely as possible to sell as many as I can. If, if, it's, if I relied that heavily on your design patent to do that, it would make sense that I would have to give you all my profits. Right. But the, court, the law doesn't actually distinguish as far as the, the value of the design patent is concerned when it comes to the product okay, how, and, and how central how well it, it is. Right. Okay. Yeah, how central mm-hmm. the design patent is to, this, to the uh, appeal of the product. Hmm. And this is why Google and Facebook and other Silicon Valley companies joined in on Samsung's side to fight over this. Right. Because here's, a, here's another example. Let's say you have a design patent where somewhere buried in the settings, you invented a toggle switch used for one thing that has a new design approach that makes it slightly more desirable. And then I sort of on my own came up with the same idea put it in my product. It doesn't matter that I invented it independently. You've already filed and gotten your patent. That one tiny little design feature on which you have a patent would still require me to give you all my profits. Wow. Even though it doesn't really, it's not really the driving influence for me selling my product. And and that, because there's no distinction in that regard, um, you can see why Facebook, Google, and others, especially software companies would would hate that kind of an outcome because it'd be really easy to inadvertently step on somebody else's design patent in a way that's very minor and doesn't actually influence the commercial viability of your product. But yet, if the patent owner won the lawsuit, then all of the profits associated with that product would have to be handed over. And that is clearly very excessive. Right. What's interesting is that Apple hasn't really, in its filings, hasn't really defended this practice. They haven't come out and said, this is why, you know, any violated design patent should require all the profits to be handed over. And and so this kind of leads us into the where is this going now topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because with most patent cases and most appeals, the Supreme Court says no. The, I mean, usually the Supreme Court only takes on an appeal when there's what's called a circuit split, which means two federal circuits have reached different conclusions about the law, and then the Supreme Court steps in to resolve the conflict. Right. There's not really a circuit split involved here. Mm-hmm. And so the reason the Supreme Court would get involved is because they just feel like this this full disgorgement of profits problem at design patents is excessive. Right. So they want to change the precedent, essentially. Right. And and so, so it'll be... First of all, Samsung has to decide to actually appeal the case. And whether or not they're going to do that, we don't know. Mm -hmm. They still have time to to file an appeal. 
and, and then if they do decide to appeal it, then it goes to the Supreme Court. And the way appeals are decided by the Supreme Court is the justices sort of oversee different groups of circuit courts. And I can't remember which justice is over the federal circuit court. But essentially what's going to happen is that appeal will go up to that justice. And that justice is going to get hundreds of appeals. And we'll only be able to grant the appeal for maybe a dozen or two of right. those cases. So the odds of it, I mean, just on the bare, like, you know, statistics, the odds of Samsung getting an appeal granted by the Supreme Court are very slim. Mm. Um, and then what's going to happen is they'll, they'll look at these hundreds of appeals and the justice will talk with his or her law clerks and decide which cases to take. And, you know, sometimes a case gets granted against an appeal granted or actually it's called certiorari when the court grants an appeal. And if they get granted cert, then then we'll see, you know, actual like briefs filed and maybe even oral arguments over this issue. Um, it's hard to know if, if that's going to happen. Um, sometimes right. the court will let several bad decisions sort of stack up before they decide, mm -hmm. yeah, we need to step in because the court is very conservative and likes to wait to right. sort of see how the law develops without them having to step in in a heavy-handed way. They take that very seriously because recognizing that they are the final arbiter on the on the issues that come before them. They don't like to take on issues where they feel like a little more time might work things out. Right. That makes sense, yeah. So, so the small implications here are, you know, just whether or not Samsung is going to be paying a half a billion dollars or close to a billion dollars, <laughs> right? I mean, right. that's kind of, okay. small. at the small yeah. level, that's, that's what we're dealing <laughs> with. At the bigger level... It is a bigger deal because this profit disgorgement requirement of that, that, that sort of rises when you violate design patents, that can actually have really terrible consequences in terms of innovation uh, in the marketplace. And this is why a lot of people hate patents generally, but especially in areas of, like software. Right. And, and so uh, who knows? I, I mean, so where does this go? The answer is we don't know. That's true for right. a lot of things that involve the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it certainly will be important, whatever happens with this case, because it is laying the groundwork for the way companies will decide, you know, will, will determine their strategy about products mm -hmm. that they're creating and designing. Yeah, and I guess it's not really even clear necessarily sort of which side Apple's on as far as the sort of precedent-setting side of this in terms of the profit disgorgement thing that you were talking about. I mean, in this particular case, obviously, they want as much as possible out of the legal case, but you mentioned they haven't really kind of defended that side of it, and perhaps it's because they don't necessarily have a view on that, but they just, in this particular case, they want to get their outcome, or, or do you think there's more to it than that? Uh, it's hard to say. I, I mean, Apple is in an interesting position here. I, I, they've got this legacy of this lawsuit with Samsung. And to walk away from it just financially doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, right. In fact, if they did, I, I think you could see, you would expect to see one or two shareholder lawsuits filed. Mm. Because Apple's in a stronger position than Samsung right now. So to walk right. away is essentially handing over this money that they're entitled to, which, mm. which is a reason for shareholders to be angry. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, it's not in Apple's interest necessarily to have this full disgorgement requirement uh, upheld, only because mm -hmm. it's inevitably going to be the case that Apple is going to... We'll be on the other side of it at some point. Be, yeah, be on the other side of the issue. And Apple has a lot more at stake because the profits it generates from its products are huge. 
Sure. I mean, imagine, you know, all of a, all of the iPhone profits having to be handed over because of a court case. Um, it would be massively disruptive. And so oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the way this plays out is hard to say as far as Apple's interests are concerned. Right now they're continuing to fight it but, it, but it's worth pointing out that Apple has become far less litigious with its patents in the last few years than it has been previously. Right. And, and in fact, I'll be honest, I think Apple's approach to this to the Samsung case comes out of two things. One is, you know, Steve Jobs was around when these when these lawsuits were filed against Samsung. And I really do think there was sort of a moral issue at stake mm-hmm. at the time as far as Steve Jobs was concerned. Right. I, I think he genuinely felt like the iPhone had been ripped off by Android, by Samsung and other smartphone manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing at uh, the other thing at stake with this case is uh, it's a shot across the bow for all the other smartphone manufacturers out there. The idea is that look, if you get too close to us, right, if you try to mimic the iPhone too much, mm-hmm. like Samsung did, we're not afraid to come after you, even if it means years of litigation and hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal bills. It, that's not going to stop us. Right. And it, they sort of, I think part of the reason they're sticking with this case is because it serves as a warning to other manufacturers. Because once they step back, right, once Apple, mm-hmm. I mean, if Apple were to abandon this, this lawsuit at this point, um, in, in this in this whole process, it essentially is a signal to all of the smartphone manufacturers that Apple's going to roll over when it comes to copying the iPhone or anything else that Apple makes. Right. And that's not a signal that Apple wants to be making in the marketplace. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Thank you, Aaron. Appreciate you walking us through all of that. Um, good to get your perspective on that and make some sense of it and kind of put it in a broader context. Um, our last topic is just to take a sort of uh, big picture view of what might be coming from Apple in the last few months of the year. Um, both of us, I think, have sent our kids back to school today for the fall term um, and uh, definitely feel like the summer's kind of winding down and we're moving into the fall. Um, and as such, we just wanted to take a preview. We'll probably do in a couple of weeks from now a more sort of short-term focused uh, episode about Apple's iPhone event that's going to be happening three weeks from when we're recording this. Um, but we just wanted to take a bigger picture of you on a few things that might be coming. One is um, iPad Pro, this larger format iPad, and there's been some news about that device showing up in server logs for various websites. Um, another thing is Apple TV. We've had another report recently about that new hardware and an SDK associated with it possibly launching at the iPhone event. And then um, another element is that Intel has slowly been revealing more details about some of its uh, processor line and so on, which could well factor into future uh, MacBooks in particular. So we just wanted to kind of have a broader discussion around all of that. Um, Aaron, do you want to kind of kick off talking about some of the Intel stuff? We were kind of talking about that a little bit before we started recording, and I think it'd be interesting for, for you to kind of talk through some of what you're thinking about there. Yeah, so Apple, so Intel has had an event this week to talk about the Skylake uh, platform that they've developed. So this is the next in the line of, uh, of, the, of the Intel chips. As far as generations go, this is the next generation chip. And a lot of people have been looking forward to Skylake um, for a couple reasons. And it's looking more and more like we can expect Skylake chips in the fall. A couple weeks from now, we'll know almost for sure if that's going to be happening. But there have been some recent rumor leaks about Skylake chips for um, 
for the very base, uh, you know, small power devices like the MacBook. Um, whether or not there's going to be Skylake chips out for the MacBook Pro line is still unsure. Intel has also announced new Xeon processors uh, for laptops, which is a big deal because uh, the idea is that you might have very, very powerful MacBook Pros that essentially have desktop class chips in them. That'll have, I imagine, a big effect on battery life. But um, I, I think for me, what's most exciting about the fall as far as Skylake goes is we're finally going to have the video out capability to keep up with the 4K, 5K display trend. You know, Apple's had the, the Retina iMac out for quite a long time now, and it's been strange that they haven't had a, an external display to match the Retina iMac. A lot of people still have external Apple displays that are not Retina, and if you want a Retina desktop screen, you have to buy an iMac, an entire iMac. You can't just buy the display. Right. The reason for the the reason for that has been because of the architecture inside Macs has not been able to support external displays with that that sort of resolution. Skylake is going to bring Thunderbolt three, which has the capacity to drive a five K display. And so I think one thing that may happen this fall is you're going to see at least bumped, if not redesigned MacBook Pros. And and it won't surprise me if this fall we finally get a Retina display, like a Retina external display from Apple. Right. Um, because Thunderbolt 3 is going to be that big of a step. And, and right now, you know, the only external, you can get a, boy, let's see, a single 4K display driven by the most recent chips. Um, so uh, that's not quite the same as this 5K iMac type display. So I think that's one of the big things that's going to happen this fall, just guessing, is that you're going to get Skylake chips in Thunderbolt 3. And obviously it also means that the, the new USB Type-C connectors are going to be standardized uh, across you know the Mac line. I think you're going to see iMacs come out with it, and I think you're going to see MacBooks Pros come out with it. Right, yeah, and it makes sense that we'll see a lot of the new style trackpads as well um, that were introduced with the MacBook showing up and the ones that don't have it yet as they do those upgrades too, I guess. Right. Um, so the iPad Pro is another one of these things that's been around as a, as a rumor, at least for a long time, that Apple was going to bring out a larger iPad. Um, WWDC saw uh, iOS 9 on iPads uh, get some sort of... Uh, multitasking uh, multi-window functionality um, at least on the newer iPads which to my mind at least seemed like a, a necessary step to introducing an iPad Pro with a larger screen in which sort of that multi-window support would be a major feature too so there have been all kinds of things building up over the last few months to, to the launch of a device like this and I guess we're now starting to see the iPad Pro running iOS 9.1 show up on server logs as well so there seems to be kind of more and more certainty that something like this is going to be launching at some point in the near future and I guess one of the big questions has just been whether Apple would do separate sort of September and October events as they have done for the last couple of years for the iPhone and iPad respectively or whether we'll see uh, everything kind of collapsed into one perhaps even skipping an upgrade for the other iPads in market because it's an obvious thing for them to add except maybe force touch um, while introducing an iPad Pro as a sort of a one more thing as part of the iPhone event. What, what do you think, Aaron? Do you think we're, we're going to see something like this imminently? It's hard to say. A Apple is a creature of habit until they're not. 
<laughs> right? Right. I mean, yeah. the problem is that they do the same thing the same way for years in a row, and then they'll change suddenly, and it sort right. of catches everybody off guard. And Apple's always done iPhones and iPads separately. I, I, I definitely think at this point there's enough smoke to expect an iPad Pro to come at some point. Whether or not it comes at the iPhone event, it's hard to say, especially because of all the rumors about the Apple TV, the new Apple TV also coming with the iPhone event. You know, the problem, one of the problems with WWDC is is totally just overpacked with predictions. And naturally, I mean, it was a long keynote, too, and half the stuff that was being predicted didn't show up. Mm-hmm. And I think the iPhone event is starting to fill up quickly with uh, what people are saying is going to come out. And so it's it's hard to say what's going to happen in terms of timing on the iPad goes. But I right. think you can expect it this fall. If you're yeah. interested in iPad Pro, I definitely wouldn't buy an iPad right now. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then the other thing was, and we've talked about this quite a bit before, so we won't dwell on this for a long time, but the Apple TV hardware that was supposedly was originally supposed to arrive at WWDC and didn't then is supposed to now potentially arrive during the iPhone event along with the announcement of a full SDK and third-party apps. And that's obviously something else that we've been waiting for for a long time. Again, another one where it seems very hard to predict whether it actually definitely will arrive at that September event. And if it does, when exactly the, the SDK might roll out and when the first, you know, if there's an app store, which you would assume there would be in combination with those things, when that might launch, because obviously going to need a little bit of time for developers to get things ready for it so that's another thing that might well be be coming in the next little while and, and interestingly it's been decoupled apparently now from the uh, launch of the apple tv service which by all accounts has now been postponed back into 2016. yeah you know the thing about the apple tv that still hangs me up as far as the iphone event goes and it's looking more and more likely based on the rumors they seem to be coming from additional reliable sources um, but what hangs me up on it is that Apple has never done a new platform for developers where they didn't give developers lead time. Right. I mean, when the iPhone came out, when the iPhone, sorry, announced the App Store, they gave developers lead time on that before the App Store actually showed up. When they announced the iPad, it was, you know, what, five months before they, or three months, I guess, before they started actually selling iPads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But developers could start working earlier. Same with the watch, both, you know, with watch OS one and now watch os 2 developers are getting lots of lead time it just it doesn't seem true to apple's approach for them to release and immediately make available on apple tv with third-party app support yeah i suppose the only possibility is uh, that they i mean the the difference i guess is there already are quite a few third-party apps on the apple tv they just have to be kind of approved one by one and developed in consultation with apple you know lots and lots of different uh, video channels from the different sports conferences and networks and things like that. So there's already a lot of that there. It's just been done on a very kind of one-on-one basis. So, um, you know, you kind of wonder if they'll turn the whole model upside down in a way and say, okay, we're going to strip it back to the uh, the new Apple TV comes with just a few Apple-provided apps. And then here's the App Store. And for today, it has these, you know, 30 things that have been available on the Apple TV already. And then in November or whatever, you know, we'll have an app store where you can buy more things or something like that. I guess that's one way that they might sort of compromise on it a little bit. Right. Um, or they might do, you know, what they did with 
um, the iPhone, where actually the iPhone itself was available for a year, and then the App Store was announced and things became available a few months later, um, where you know the new Apple TV hardware could go on sale almost immediately, but with the promise that you know two months from now or whatever, then the App Store will launch, because by then developers will have had time to create some channels and games and, and whatnot for it. That feels more likely. Whenever yeah. it happens, it's definitely going to be the next gold rush as far as right. Apple devices go, for developers, I mean. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, there hasn't really been a gold rush sort of effect with the watch yet, but that's because there haven't been real apps, and that's changing coming this fall. Mm -hmm. But it's also a pretty constrained device as far as apps go. With the TV, oh, yeah. my gosh, it's going to be a massive market. I think it's going to be hugely disruptive to anything connected to televisions for there to be a third-party app store. Right. I, I mean, Nintendo, Xbox, PlayStation... Uh, I think those are the those are the devices that need to be the most scared because it's going to dramatically change the way gaming works on a television. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's wrap up a little full preview there for now since we're running long on time. Um, we'll just wrap up, too, with our weekly pick, which, as a reminder, is a weekly feature that we do where one of us and we do tend to take it in turns, we'll recommend something that we've been using or something that we've discovered that we enjoy. Um, I did have one question on Twitter this week about whether this was some sort of paid promotional placement or something <laughs> like that. And I just want to uh, reassure listeners that no, it isn't. This is genuinely stuff that we've enjoyed and are recommending simply because we've enjoyed it. We don't have um, sponsors or advertisers on the podcast. Not that we're against that, but if we ever do it, then we'll be very clear about when, when we're uh, introducing those and, and separate those from the content of the show so these are really things that we've just enjoyed and would like to recommend genuinely to our listeners um, this week um, I'm recommending a movie it's something I saw a few months back but it's just come out on uh, DVD and more relevantly on uh, digital streaming services and it's um, it's a period drama so if you're into that kind of thing you might well enjoy it um, it's uh, Far From the Madding Crowd which is based on a Thomas Hardy novel written in the late uh, 1800s um, if you're not familiar with Thomas Hardy, he writes, uh, he wrote in about the same sort of period of time as Charles Dickens, who you may be more familiar with, but Thomas Hardy's books tend to be a bit more, uh, shall I say, grim uh, or pessimistic. They, they don't always have happy endings in the way that most Charles Dickens novels do. So uh, I haven't always been a huge fan. I think the stories are fascinating in many cases, and Mayor of Casterbridge is another one. Uh, what I liked about this one was, it's still complex. It's multi-layered. Um, the story is about uh, a young woman called Bathsheba Everdeen. And if the last name sounds familiar, I'm presuming this is where the inspiration for the main character in the Hunger Games last name came from. Um, but Bathsheba Everdeen, which is quite a name in its own right, she's a young woman who inherits a farm and then has three very different men um, approach her at different points during her life to, to, to want to marry her ultimately and has to make a decision between the three of them. And the story doesn't quite play out the way that you would expect and there are some twists and turns and things along the way, but it's a, a fascinating story and ultimately unlike most of Hardy's other novels and the movies made out of them, this one has something of a happy ending, uh, which was quite fun as well. But it's far from the madding crowd. Um, Kerry Mulligan um, plays the main character in it. There's a variety of other actors, some of whom would be familiar, especially if you've watched many English dramas over the last few years, uh, including Michael Sheen, who played uh, Tony Blair in the movie The Queen. Um, I'm English, so I'm biased towards this kind of stuff, but uh, I think it's a fantastic film, very well acted, um, great sort of pacing and, and uh, great sort of adaptation of, of the book. Um, it's rated PG-13, 
Um, there's some slightly adult stuff in there, nothing too racy, but uh, probably not one to watch with your younger children. But uh, anyway, out on DVD now, we'll post the links and so on on the podcast uh, website. Now, Yen, I have to verify that this is actually a happy ending because I've noticed that you Brits have a much higher tolerance for sad endings than Americans do. <laughs> no, no, this one definitely is a happy ending. It doesn't seem like it's tending that way. There's definitely a pretty grim part in the middle where <laughs> you wonder you wonder whether this is just going to be like every other Thomas Hardy uh, novel. Um, but no, this one does actually have a happy ending. So I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for being with us again this week. We appreciate you taking the time to listen to the podcast. We um, welcome your feedback, as always, via Twitter or via the comments feature on uh, the website. Um, Again, we'll have show notes, including links to various things uh, on the website at podcast.beyonddevices. And uh, we look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you.